Welcome to Critical Window, a podcast from the Alliance for Excellent Education that explores the rapid changes happening in the body and the brain during adolescence and what these changes mean for educators, policymakers, and communities. This week on Critical Window, we're learning about what the science of adolescent learning tells us about the development of literacy skills during adolescence and how educators can support this development. Dr. Meira Tara is a senior research scientist for the Learner Variability Project at Digital Promise, where she leads the synthesis of research on the cognitive, social-emotional, and student background factors that affect K-12 learning, with the goal of increasing educators' and product developers' understanding of learner variability. Meta studies the factors that affect how children and adults acquire new skills and knowledge, including individual differences, the learning environment, and the medium through which they learn. She's published her research in the Journal of Cognition and Development, Language, Learning, and Technology, and in numerous technical reports and presentations for non-academic audiences. Meta holds a BA from Rutgers University and a PhD in Psychology from University of Michigan. Welcome to the show, Meta. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So let's start by talking about Digital Promise. For those not familiar, could you provide an overview of Digital Promise's history and its core programs? Sure, yeah. Digital Promise is an independent, um, bipartisan nonprofit that was authorized by Congress in 2008. And our primary mission is to accelerate innovation in education. So our work is at the intersection of educators, researchers, and entrepreneurs um, to work together to tackle some of education's biggest challenges. Primarily, we work to connect people and ideas through networks, uh, we conduct research on learning science and technology, and we look to share stories that inspire action. Um, ultimately, we want to see that all learners have equitable access to powerful learning opportunities that are authentic, collaborative, and inquisitive. That's a lot of different stuff you guys work on. <laughs> uh, so Digital Promise, as you mentioned in there, you have a suite of work related to the learning sciences. Can you first share how Digital Promise, de Digital Promise defines learning sciences and explain why the organization is interested in this space? Yeah, definitely. At Digital Promise, we consider learning sciences to be interdisciplinary, so including research from psychology, education, sociology, cognitive science, uh, disciplines that may not normally talk to each other. And we don't only focus on how people learn, but also the resources and supports that enable learning and also how to design learning environments and instruction that help students reach their potential. Um, one of our goals is to move this research out from behind the walls of academic journals and into the hands of those working up close in classrooms and schools um, to, so that it can be used. Right. And are there, what are the specific programs? I'm going to review that offer. Thank you. And what are the projects and specific programs at Digital Promise related to the learning sciences? So all of our projects and programs are steeped in learning sciences. Um, we really want to make research come alive uh, in various learning environments and support practitioners and ed tech developers who are looking for ways to apply the research in the classroom. So one example is Digital Promises League of Innovative Schools. Um, it's a premier network of 114 districts nationwide. Many of the school leaders are interested in learning sciences topics such as social-emotional learning, real-world learning, and learner variability. So one thing that Digital Promise does is to facilitate cohorts of district leaders uh, from across the country, help them dig deep into these topics together, and then share out their successes and challenges. And today we're here to talk about one project in particular, the Learner Variability Project. Uh, could you start by telling us what the Learner Variability Project is and tell us about the history and goals of the project? 
Um, recognizing learner variability is something many teachers have tried to do for decades. So it's understanding in a whole child way a student's challenges and strengths, and then tailoring instruction to meet each learner's needs. And the reason we say it's whole child is because it recognizes how learners vary in their academic skills, their cognitive abilities, uh, social-emotional states, and their personal backgrounds. And all of this is what research says has an impact on learning. So in order to facilitate this understanding, we look at what the research says. So one learner may struggle with working memory, um, their ability to kind of hold information in mind and manipulate it. But is this challenge a learning difference, or is it because they're getting too little sleep? Maybe they're taking care of younger siblings while their single mom works the night shift. So research supports both assumptions, and we also show strategies for working with students in both situations. So you mentioned the whole child, you mentioned social-emotional learning, and I think sometimes in discussions around this area and the science of learning or the learning sciences, people who aren't familiar can hear all these different terms, and it seems like what you're saying is the Learner Variability Project draws on these different areas and is connected to them. They're not necessarily competing. Is that the case? Absolutely. So we consider whole child kind of the umbrella term. And then within that, we highlight factors that cover a lot of these topics that educators are interested in. So emotion, motivation, stereotype threat, um, and then trauma that students have experienced. So a lot of the initiatives that people are talking about that you would consider to be whole child, we try to make them concrete and show you the research behind what are the factors that actually create the whole child. Yeah, and then another uh, thing I wanted to be clear about um, and to add on is that when we talk about learner variability, we're not talking about learning styles. So current research does not support that learning styles exist, the idea that learners have a particular modality like visual or auditory where they learn best. Instead, learning, learner variability is steeped in the research that shows the factors that we know matter in learning. So these could be students' attention abilities, how much exercise they're getting, the safety of their neighborhood, and building block skills such as background knowledge. And uh, we know that these factors interact with each other. So we know that greater physical fitness can improve attention and focus in the classroom. So our tool shows how these connect. Um, and in our website, the Learner Variability Navigator, um, which is free and open source for anyone to use, um, we show those connections and um, also what educators can do to support the variability of each student. Great, thank you for clarifying how yeah. those all relate with each other. <laughs> So then, and you started explaining this, could you explain more how the Learner Variability Project is constructed and what type of content people can expect to find there? Yeah, absolutely. So I've mentioned our categories, um, things like social-emotional learning, cognitive learning, um, and student background, where research have studied all of these different um, variations that can affect students' outcomes. So many times these research areas are siloed, where people studying cognitive development don't consider social-emotional components and vice versa. So we're showing how all these factors um, connect, and um, that's also an area that's ripe for new research as well. And what we do is we curate those uh, factors. We also show the research-based strategies that can support students with different strengths and needs. And uh, we provide resources such as videos to get practitioners started using um, the strategies in their classrooms. Um, I'll note that we added uh, workspaces to our website so people can uh, curate their own workspaces and share with collaborators. And ultimately, the goal is to support practitioners and also educational technology developers to design educational experiences that meet the needs of, of diverse learners. Which researchers have helped you all guide the development of the Learner Variability Project? 
So our, we have an overall board for the, the project, and that's a wonderful group of advisors who range from researchers, thought leaders, educators, district administrators, edtech product developers. Uh, one is Kalisa Wing, who's a 2017 State Teacher of the Year, and she's written several books about equity in schools. And then each learner model, uh, we now have them from pre-K to high school for math and literacy, has its own advisory board made up of research in the content area for the grade range. So these are uh, researchers who study the development of adolescent reading and writing skills uh, in the most recent model, and how they interact with motivation, social relationships, and identity. Uh, one of the advisors, for example, is Steve Graham, who's a national expert on the development of writing skills and how they affect reading comprehension. And people, when they're on the website, they can see the names of these folks who helped you build this. They can uh, learn more about them and their work. Yeah, absolutely. So we have the, the names of the advisory board members on each model that shows um, you know, who was involved in the process, and they often uh, were uh, reviewing some of the content that we generated, giving suggestions, um, or helping in other ways. Can you quickly tell us all the different models that you've already developed as part of the project? Absolutely. So we started off with reading pre-K to third grade, and now we also have uh, literacy for grades four through six and the adolescent literacy um, that we've just launched. And then similarly, we have math for grades uh, pre-K to two, uh, grades three to six, and seven to nine. So that goes up into high school and algebra and we divided those up based on um, where the literature was, so how do researchers group those um, age ranges for the developments that are happening in terms of cognitive skills and academic skills. Uh, and then also, of course, all these different um, social developments as well. So then you just referenced uh, your newest model that we're going to talk more about now, a literacy model for grades 7 through 12. Can you guide us through the development of that specific model and what it looks like? Absolutely. So this was a, a great um, experience developing this model. I learned so much in, in diving into the research. And what we do is we start with an initial scan of the literature. Uh, we read summary reports of empirical research to get a sense of the major developments in the, top, in the topic area. And in this case, your reports on the science of adolescent learning were really helpful for setting the stage. So I read all of them. I'm a big fan. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. We, appreciate yeah. the, we appreciate the positive feedback. Yeah. Um, and then our advisors, uh, they help us draft this set of learner factors that we know predict successful literacy outcomes. Um, we added some key components to this model, including argumentative reasoning, disciplinary literacy, and critical literacy. So those are skills that are developing and really coming online for adolescents at this age. And then the advisors also help us refine existing factors. So for example, Alan Wigfield is at the University of Maryland. He's an expert on motivation. And he helped us update our framing of academic motivation. So rather than a traditional model describing extrinsic and extrinsic uh, motivation as two mutually exclusive types, the current thinking is that oftentimes both are at play when students are working toward a goal. So a student might not be intrinsically motivi motivated to write a particular essay, uh, but they might understand how doing that relates to a longer-term goal that they have. So because our process is iterative, we can uh, continually refine our content to reflect this complexity, and we were able to do that with the motivation factor. You mentioned that our reports helped you out, uh, which, I, like I said, is we're very happy uh, and excited to hear that. Could you just say you know, what specifically you were drawing from them and how they were helpful with you developing your work in this, in this model and, and perhaps others? Yeah, absolutely. So the reports just really helped frame out, uh, in particular, the 
cognitive and social emotional and background pieces of the work. So we were focusing on developing the literacy factors, of course, that were the skills that were coming online. But your reports focus on identity, they focus on culture, they focus on physical development. So all of those different pieces uh, gave us a starting point for looking at the empirical research. So we, you know, I read them, I was looking at the references you guys had, and then went from there to build out you know, each individual factor that we have in our model. Um, and of course, you have a wonderful advisory board as well. Some of there's some overlap uh, in your advisory and our advisory. So I think there was a lot of um, great synergy there. So what are the core themes the model tells us about the development of literacy skills in adolescents? One of the major themes is that students are now using those foundational reading and writing skills that they developed in elementary and middle school to build knowledge and then write and read authentic uh, texts and write for authentic audiences and purposes that are meaningful to them, that motivate them. So we know from your previous reports, this is key for uh, engaging adolescents. Um, they're also learning the conventions of literature, science, history, and other disciplines, and how to use those conventions so they can work at a higher level. And the key developments in things like metacognition, those cognitive skills, that is what is allowing students to think about their reading comprehension to say, oh, I didn't understand that passage, I'm going to go back and reread, or to use planning strategies when they're writing. And we like to emphasize this a lot here is adolescents and you were talking about it, it's this unique period of development where you're still seeing changes in the brain, talked about the type of metacognitive skills that are developing. So literacy skills are affected by this ongoing neurodevelopment that's taking place, correct? Absolutely. Absolutely. So we see working memory skills, reasoning skills, metacognition is a huge one that's really allowing students to um, get to the next level in their ability to um, think critically and create arguments. Um, and persuade others and understand and empathize with others as well. How important, and can you give some examples of this, how important is cultural and historical responsiveness in adolescent literacy? It's huge. So identity, of course, is a major component of adolescent development. So as students are understanding facets of their own identity in relation to the outside world, the diversity of the literature they're assigned and discussions that are happening around these texts can play a major role in them understanding more about themselves and the academic content. Content. So we hosted a webinar recently that you can still watch a recording of with one of our advisors, uh, Goldie Mohammed at the Georgia State University. So she presented on how to bring students' identity, personal histories, and socio-political and historical events into the classroom. So for example, she writes about black literary societies of the 1800s, and how students should know about their academic legacies. Um, in her new book, she actually also presents sample lesson plans and sets of texts to guide teachers in creating these kinds of lessons. Um, we also had a wonderful National Board Certified High School English teacher, Sarah Ballard, on the webinar, and she shared her experience teaching primarily black students in Mississippi. So one movement that she embrace, embraces is teaching living poets. So students can study works produced by contemporary writers who come from backgrounds similar to them. And I thought their, both of their presentations were amazing. They both talked about how building relationships with students and making space um, for conversations about race, identity, and other topics was critical. So do we do a good job currently, with, in, in your opinion, uh, applying some of these themes already in our classrooms, in our literacy uh, development for adolescents? Are we considering their neurodevelopment? Are we considering their identity and, and the culture and historical ramifications of the communities they come from, or are we not really considering these things? 
I think we could do a lot better. So um, I think a lot of teachers have good intentions in that area, but are, have not necessarily been trained on how to manage those kinds of conversations in the classroom. And so that's why building um, some knowledge in the in for teachers and presenting them with examples, uh, I think, can go a long way. One of the comments you made to me when we were preparing for this conversation was that the model moves beyond the traditional old-school English literacy class, uh, and that it uses background knowledge to think critically about bias and power. So could you elaborate more on what this model does? Yeah, and I think this relates to the question that you just asked about what we could do better and um, how can we can we help um, provide those strategies to uh, educators as well. So what we found is that adolescents really need to be engaging with a variety of texts to be able to compare them and then question the sources, consider issues of power and bias and disparities uh, in society. And this is the idea of critical literacy, where students are building inquiry skills, they're building reflection skills that allow them to look at text through a sociocultural lens. So some of the strategies that we feature on our website include layering different texts and even multimedia content such as videos to trigger this kind of reflection. And another strategy that I love is having students produce counter texts. So they are explicitly prompted to consider non-dominant or marginalized viewpoints that might have been missing from original document, documents that they uh, read. So students can give voice to these perspectives and challenge stereotypes or flawed historical accounts and I think these are the kinds of history and English classes that I think a lot of us wish we had. Uh, and they're skills that can be taken beyond the classroom. So I'm hearing all this wonderful theoretical and research-based uh, content that you've all put together and you're referencing. Can you share some explicit examples of places where you've seen this model work and successfully applied? Yeah, that's a great question. So our work is not just to curate and share the research. We have active partnerships um, with EdTech products and school districts to build their awareness and understanding of learner variability and how they can design for it. So a district that we, one of the districts we work with, they provide an example for us of a story where um, a young girl was in, probably in first or second grade, she was having a lot of trouble with reading, seemingly, and they brought the teacher, the parents, and the school counselor in, and they looked at our website together. And they showed how, you know, the teachers thought that it was a decoding issue. This was early reading, so that's, you know, a major focus. And they said, well, we tried a lot of different strategies, but none of them seemed to work. And then um, they showed how decoding and reading skills are related to emotion. And the parents mentioned that she has a lot of anxiety reading in front of other people. And so that might be where it was coming from, where she couldn't read in class, it was really an emotion issue. Um, and so that was one example where using the site and laying out the whole child framework actually triggered the conversation where people realized that there was more than just the basic skills that are playing into what's happening in the classroom. Um, so you asked about other ways that we're applying the work. So we're in the process of building out PD toolkits for teachers. So we want teachers to be able to have um, a practical way of actually using the content that we have on our website. So one example is a lesson reflection guide that our practitioner partnerships director has just created. So really just taking your, your typical lesson plan and then using our site to um, kind of gauge, you know, am I 
considering all of these different factors that are affecting how students learn? Are there ways for students to collaborate and be social in my, in my lesson? Are there ways that I'm touching on culturally relevant content? Are there ways that I'm supporting students who have had adverse experiences? And you don't have to do everything in every lesson. That's, that's not possible. But just to keep that in mind as you're going through and building out your curriculum. We haven't yet done a lot of work with the adolescent literacy model because it just launched um, about a month ago. But with one of our previous uh, literacy and reading models, we worked with a nonprofit literacy platform called ReadWorks, where we supported their efforts to infuse research-based um, features on their platform. And a recent efficacy study that we conducted showed that 92% of students used the features that were added to support different needs. So I'll give one example. Teachers told us that they had students with lower reading comprehension skills in their classes, including students with autism, and they used a feature, an audio feature, where they could listen along to an article on ReadWorks. And that meant that students didn't miss out on building critical background knowledge skills, and they could also participate in classroom discussions because they had access to the content. And so that's one example of where we showed how um, audio features could be a research-based way to access content for a more um, broader uh, audience of students. That's really exciting. And I'm sure, like you said, if people visit your site and look at the other models, they'll find examples of where this has been successfully applied. And, and as time goes on for this model, there'll be more, there will be more of those examples. So then how can teachers use this model and apply the findings in their own coursework? Do they have to start from scratch with just this model, or can they incorporate it in what they're already doing? Yeah. So teachers will recognize many of the strategies that we highlight, but they can learn more about the research behind them and how they support different learner factors. So teachers can use the information here and weave it into programs and practices that they're already implementing. So as we mentioned earlier, we address whole child topics culturally responsive teaching, other initiatives that schools are engaging in, and LVN can also be aligned with state standards. And what should school leaders, superintendents, and principals learn from this work that you're doing? What, what really is their role in applying the science of adolescent learning to literacy development? So we want uh, people to know that the research matters. So um, we emphasize that we need to teach the whole child and that means weaving social-emotional learning into academics. And we also want people to know that it's doable, that they can incorporate this work into their district initiatives. So we know from our work with districts that um, teachers must be supported, primarily through professional development that's based on what the current science shows is key for whole child learning. And actually, uh, our latest survey, national survey, shows that 90% of public school teachers say they lack the support to focus on students' individual learner variability. So we know that this professional development and support from administrators is a critical piece of the puzzle. And as part of our project, we're also building out um, some of those PD tools. And what do you see as the next steps for implementing large-scale policies and practices that align with the fines of this model and support implementation in schools and classrooms? So we would love to see uh, federal and state policies recognize learner variability and its evidence-based whole child framework. And you know, also see how our free tool can help teacher colleges and professional de development programs support teachers and um, build that base from, you know, through their own education programs um, so that they can then meet the needs of each learner and help students reach their potential in schools and beyond. Uh, so for those interested in connecting more with the Learner Variability Project, what are the resources and opportunities 
uh, that they can find to connect? So that's a great question. So we have a lot going on and a lot of different resources. The Learner Variability Navigator website that I mentioned is lvp.digitalpromiseglobal.org. And that's where you can go to see the factors and strategies that I was mentioning. We have reports also on the research we conduct and also thought papers on what we consider learner variability to be. On EdWeb, we have a community, uh, Personalized Learning for Learner Variability where we have the uh, archives of the webinar I referenced, as well as many others on particularly uh, culturally responsive teaching and math and literacy topics as well. And we are always looking for uh, people to partner with, districts, school districts, uh, and practitioners who are interested in implementing these uh, practices and also products. So we actually have RFPs for products to work with us to do those assessments and help them infuse their work with um, more research. This is some really exciting work that you all have put together and I'm really happy that we were able to have you here today. Thank you for, for your time. Our guest is Meta Tare. She is a senior research scientist for the Learner Variability Project at Digital Promise, where she leads the synthesis of research on the cognitive, social, emotional, and student background factors that affect K-12 learning, with the goal of increasing educators and product developers' understanding of learner variability. Thank you again so much for being here. Thank you for having me. It was really a pleasure. Thank you for listening to Critical Window, the Alliance for Excellent Education's podcast on how the research from the science of adolescent learning can inform middle and high school design and the work of school leaders. Tell your colleagues, friends, and families about Critical Window, and please subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher to make sure you catch future episodes. This podcast was produced by Aharon Charnov, Hans Herman, and Robin Harper. To learn more about the science of adolescent learning, visit all4ed.org slash SAL.